and welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Dr. Julie Fouché, family physician and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, I bring you information and inspiration to help bridge the gap between fitness and medicine and support your journey toward your healthiest self. Thank you so much for joining me. Now let's get started with this week's episode. Hello to my Pursuing Health listeners. It's crazy to think that we are quickly approaching nine years and 300 episodes of the Pursuing Health podcast. This has been one of the most fun and rewarding endeavors of my life, and I'm not planning to stop anytime soon, but I thought it would be fun as we approach episode 300 to go back and revisit some of my all-time favorite episodes. Through this process, I have enjoyed meeting so many interesting people, hearing incredible stories, and connecting with all of you. So hopefully you enjoy this episode and look forward to many more to come. Hey there, and welcome back to Pursuing Health. In this episode, I had the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Wayne Jonas, who is a practicing family physician, a widely published scientific researcher, author, and expert in integrative health. As I mentioned early in the episode, I first heard of Dr. Jonas's work through one of my own residency faculty, who suggested that I read his book called How Healing Works. This book completely changed the way that I think about healing and is one that I now frequently recommend to friends, colleagues, or anyone in healthcare. Dr. Jonas is incredibly accomplished. Some of his past roles include serving as the director of the NIH's Office of Alternative Medicine, the director of the World Health Organization's Center for Traditional Medicine, director of Medical Research Fellowship at Walter Reed Army Institute of Research. Dr. Jonas is also a retired lieutenant colonel for the United States Army Medical Corps. He currently works as a family physician in Fort Belvoir Community Hospital Pain Clinic, as well as a clinical professor of family medicine at Georgetown University and executive director of the Samueli Integrative Health Programs. Dr. Jonas and I sat down recently to discuss his career path, some fascinating research on the placebo effect and the importance of cultural context in healing rituals, how our current healthcare system contributes to only 20% of the health in our country, and how we can tap into that extra 80% of healing through lifestyle, environment, relationships, and spiritual development. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, and I know Dr. Jonas's work will continue to shape my own practice of family medicine for years to come, so I hope you all enjoy listening to it as well. Welcome to Pursuing Health. I am very excited to be here with Dr. Wayne Jonas, so thank Mm -hmm. you for joining me. My pleasure. So I know you talk a lot about the importance of meaning and purpose, and I thought maybe we could just start with... What brought you first into a career in medicine, and then why family medicine? Yeah, so, uh, so I probably knew or thought I would might be a doctor since I was twelve. Actually, mm-hmm. um, my uh, father was a chaplain in the military, okay. and uh, after the wars were over, he, he ended up going through three wars. Wow! Uh, but after the last war was over, the Vietnam War, he asked himself, uh, "Well, where's the most suffering?" And it said, "Well, it's in the hospital." So mm-hmm. he he ended up becoming a hospital chaplain, which was a new thing back mm. then, where they specifically trained um, chaplains to be hospital 
work just in the hospital. So I asked him one day, I said, well, you know, I thought it was the doctors that are going to the hospital. What do you do in the hospital? He says, oh, I help people heal. And that startled me even more because I thought, well, I thought it was the doctors that are helping people <laughs> heal. And he says, well, I help, uh, I help them heal through the spiritual path, through, mm. their, through the inner path. Uh, um, and so that always stuck with me because then when I uh, went to, uh, was going to go to medical school, I was fortunate to be accepted into medical school two years early with the opportunity to explore other things. Oh. And so one of the things I did was I... Um, uh, I said, I want to find out, you know, what does a chaplain do uh, in the hospital? So I was a student chaplain doing what's called clinical pastoral education, a CPE training, okay. knowing that I wasn't going to be a chaplain. I was going to become a medical mm -hmm. uh, physician. Uh, but I went in and I was given permission through Union Theological Seminary to, to do a CPE training program for several months. Wow. And uh, so uh, my first or second day, uh, I was assigned a patient uh, who had agreed to see a student chaplain. Uh, and I went up uh, to uh, to his room. He was uh, an older man in his mid-70s who had metastatic lung cancer, and he was in the hospital on morphine to control the pain. He mm -hmm. was on an IV morphine um, infusion. And so I went up into his room, and I sat next to him, uh, and I thought, well, he asked for a chaplain, asked for someone to administer, but he was asleep. Hmm. And I thought, oh, well, he's just zonked <laughs> out for morphine. This should be easy, right? I'm, 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 I'm all of 23 at the time right. and had no idea what I was doing. And I uh, sat down uh, to his bed and I closed my eyes and I just started to say some prayers and said, well, I'll just report back that I just said a few prayers. Mm -hmm. And then while my eyes are closed, I suddenly feel his hand on my hand. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he had woken up and he'd reached over and he'd touched my hand and he said, son, you're going to be okay. Wow. <laughs> uh, and I realized then that he was healing me. Hmm. Uh, and so uh, that insight uh, around healing as being uh, something that emerged out of relationship, that emerged out of the interaction between two people that were looking to help each other was the heart of healing. Mm. Uh, and so uh, he found something that he could do uh, that was meaningful and purposeful for him. I was trying to find something that I could do that was meaningful and purposeful for him. And as we began to talk, because uh, then I began to, to, to relate to him, mm -hmm. uh, he said... Uh, uh, I asked him, well, what do you want to get out of the last part of your life here? And he was very clear about it. Mm. None of the other physicians actually had heard this because nobody had asked her the question. Right. And he said, uh, I realize I'm dying and uh, my daughter's uh, is going to be married and I want to be there for that. And I want the, the they're, they're going to have the ceremony in the hospital room, but I want to be clear for it. So I want to learn how to control my pain differently. Mm -hmm. So we had a discussion about what he did mm -hmm. to control his pain on his own besides the medication. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, I love music, especially classical music, especially Bach. And when I listen to it, it just takes me off and I just feel great. Mm. 
And so I said, well, why don't we try something like that around the time of your, of your, when your daughter comes in to get, get married? And so we set up uh, earphones that weren't quite as sophisticated <laughs> as these, but some things that could really surround him with that. And when mm-hmm. we played it, his pain would significantly drop. Wow. He'd feel much better. Uh, he was clearer. And so we timed the playing of this around the time that the ceremony uh, was going on. And he was able to actually participate fully awake, alert, et cetera, uh, not being, uh, uh, you know, zonked out on, on IV morphine. And so that lesson, uh, that was second lesson that I learned from that mm-hmm. is that the patient actually is in the driver's seat. And this was before the Institute of Medicine did their uh, classic study in mm-hmm. 2001 called Crossing the Quality Chasm, which was how do you do quality health care, which is said basically put the patient in the driver's seat. That mm-hmm. launched the whole area called patient-centered care. But I realized early on that you had to ask, what's meaningful for you in life? And that should drive the evidence that you bring in, the uh, interactions and the therapies that you bring in, uh, and the healing components that you bring in. And little did I know at that time that 80% of those factors were factors I wasn't going to learn about in medical school. Mm -hmm. I didn't know. I thought I'm going to learn all this stuff (laughs) when I get into medical school. Uh, But it did did show me that um, asking what matters and then looking at uh, what the patient said helped Mm -hmm. has to be a key part of how medicine should be practiced. And so the only profession, the only specialty I could think of that could do that was family medicine. Yes. Now, it's not true. There are lots of, <laughs> of me- there are lots of specialties <laughs> that can do that now. But um, uh, family medicine had this idea of something called the biopsychosocial model. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had read the papers on that, and I was impressed by that, and I realized it meant taking care of the whole person, uh, not just their body, but their social environment, uh, but the, uh, their uh, the physical environment that they're in, uh, and something that I've added uh, since mm-hmm. then because of my experiences, like I've just described, is the spiritual environment. Mm-hmm. So I call it the biopsychosocial spiritual model, uh-huh. and that's what family medicine, and it really is what all medicine should be anchored in. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's amazing to have that experience, even prior to starting medical school. I was very lucky. Yeah, wow. I was lucky. Yeah. And you mentioned um, that there is this 80% of healing that traditional medicine is not necessarily tapping into, and so I want to dig into that a little bit. I think you call it the healing paradox and right. you have you know done a lot of research and looked at a lot of research around this um, where obviously right now when we're trying to test new drugs and new therapies we're looking at how much extra benefit does that therapy give beyond a placebo it always has to be compared to a placebo but actually there's so much healing that happens with often with just the placebo that we're ignoring because we're so focused on this incremental benefit um, and that's true whether it's traditional conventional drugs or some surgeries, but also even the integrative therapies um, as well. And so that's true. One of the, um, you know, so I'm interested in this talking about some of that research and then where, um, where that extra 80% is coming from. Yeah. So we'll, we can talk about placebo in a bit, but uh, one of the things that um, I discovered and now it's been well discovered and is out there in mm-hmm. lots of different data sets, uh, uh, and been published multiple times, is that if uh, we had full health care coverage for everybody in the country, you know, universal health insurance, mm-hmm. it's a big push for it right now that mm-hmm. the, there's a new election, election coming yeah. up <laughs> and everybody wants to do that. 
Uh, even if we, but if we had, say, platinum level healthcare, like uh, the patients that I see, I see patients in the military. They have mm-hmm. platinum level. They have access to any kind of medication, any mm-hmm. kind of specialist. Uh, if everybody had that, they actually know how much health that would produce, and it's about fifteen to twenty percent. They've actually done the studies showing that. Uh, uh, Robert Ward Johnson has commissioned uh, a, uh, a tracking system mm-hmm. that goes all in every county of the world. And they've shown that about 20% of our health is produced from medical care, from mm-hmm. what we do in the office mm-hmm. and what I learned in medical school. The rest of it comes from three basic places. Um, one is the physical environment, the place that you're in, mm-hmm. okay, seems to have a, a big uh, influence, your zip code, mm-hmm. even more than your genetic code. Mm-hmm. Um, the lifestyle and behavior components, so these come down to what I call the big four, stress, sleep, exercise, and food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and then the social and uh, economic environment that you live in, so what's called the social determinants of health. Uh, housing, whether you have access to food, transportation, education, those areas, the social determinants, those have about a 40% contribution. Each of those has mm-hmm. close to a 40% contribution. And so this is where health comes from. So if healthcare wants to be part of the solution, that is, if they want to be part of producing health and well being mm-hmm. in the country, they need to get out of uh, the narrow box that they have that's only producing the 20%, the pills, procedures, and uh, the non-placebo part Mm -hmm. uh, and get into the uh, behavioral areas and get into the social determinants of health and create a system that actually supports the patient in enhancing those kinds of self-care and those environmental components and social components that are there. And if they do that, then we're going to find that we'll be able to not only improve health significantly more than we are now, Mm -hmm. uh, but it's going to be cheaper. It's going to be less expensive because many of these uh, self-care approaches are less expensive mm-hmm. than what we currently do, mm-hmm. which is, uh, you know, wait till somebody gets sick and then throw very expensive treatments at them. Right. Pay for it on the back end with That's a lot right. of suffering in the middle. That's right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so it's that 80% that, uh, that the book is uh, about, and mm-hmm. it's about how to implement that actually mm-hmm. in your daily life. Uh, if you'd like to make sure to identify and bring in that other 80% so mm-hmm. that you have 100% of what uh, tools that are available. Mm-hmm. And if you're a provider, how do you bring it into your practice? And I call that integrative health. Uh, integrative health is a little different than complementary medicine. It's different than integrative medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, integrative health is the merger of conventional care, like I learned and you learned in, mm-hmm. in, uh, in your own medical training, um, evidence-based complementary practices, non-drug approaches, mm-hmm. and then self-care, behavior, and lifestyle. If you put those three together, together, you have integrative health, and now we're talking. Now we're now we're able to really not only prevent a lot of illnesses, but in many cases reverse a lot of the chronic illnesses that play, plague our country today. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, going back a little bit to some of these studies with placebo or just not necessarily, I know you don't really like the term placebo, but um, some of the studies looking at those other effects that are impacting the way that people respond to interventions. Um, There was one, I think you talked about um, that highlights how the cultural context is very important for delivering these therapies and how much people are going to respond to different placebos. So for example, if you have 
if you're here in a Western culture and you give someone a placebo pill, they may respond very well to that. But if you give a placebo pill to someone in a culture where pills are not their go-to expected therapy, they may not have the same response. Right. Well, I know medical uh, uh, students and residents are very interested in the placebo concept. <laughs> uh, um, uh, several years ago, I wrote an article with Dan Mormon from the University of Michigan in which um, we said uh, we should do away with the term placebo effect and mm-hmm. call it the meaning response, the meaning and context response, because um, uh, the effect that we observe within the placebo arms of studies when we uh, randomize people to get a chemical uh, drug, for example, and then get a placebo, and then we look at the healing rates, uh, most of the time, for at least for chronic dis- diseases, the uh, healing rate that occurs in the placebo arms are so large that we end up having to do large multicenter studies to show that little amount that the, that the chemical actually produces on top of it, mm-hmm. but that's what makes the profits, right? And so that sort of drives doing those very large studies. Right. But if we turn the lens around and we say, well, what's under the hood of placebo? Let's just take the placebo label off and let's see what are the other things that are going on in that. Mm-hmm. Then we begin to get good science-based tools that you can bring into any practice using any tool and it will enhance the healing response. And so it should be really called the healing response instead of the placebo response. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of examples of this. Uh, uh, One of the big myths is that we think it's just up in our head what Mm -hmm. you believe consciously in your head. And that does have some influence. Your expectation will influence the outcome. Um, But even more important than that is the cultural expectation, the cultural context Mm -hmm. that you just um, uh, alluded to. Uh, And one of the best in uh, sort of classic examples is... uh, Uh, Studies that have shown that um, bright colored pills, such Mm -hmm. as orange and yellow, tend to be stimulatory. If you give somebody a bright colored pill, they'll say, oh, I'm now more alert. I can think better. If you give them blue and purple, then they tend to get more depressed. It's more depressive and Mm -hmm. sedative, Mm -hmm. and they'll feel sleepy and that kind of stuff. And that was true pretty much across the board, except an anthropologist noticed that that didn't occur in Italy. Uh, And he said, well, why is that? Blue was not producing these consistent sort of sedative and calming effects in Italy. So he went into Italy and uh, he started asking, you know, people, well, what do you associate with blue, Mm -hmm. blue colors? Mm -hmm. And uh, very, very different responses between the men and the women at the time that he did this study. Um, When he asked the men, well, what what comes to mind when you say blue? They said, well, the national football team. And that's exciting. (laughs) And if they ask the women, it's a Catholic country, Uh and the first thing they would respond frequently was, oh, it's the color of the Virgin Mary. That's what she's dressed in, Uh a very calming color. And so there are very different responses. (laughs) And that's an example of the meaning Mm -hmm. that was embedded for different populations. Mm -hmm. And that's been looked at now at many, many different different, uh, cultures. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, the, the meaning response that occurs across cultures often is the determining factor as to whether you can prove a drug drug works or not mm. uh, because if the uh, placebo response in the placebo arms if the meaning response is very high mm-hmm. in the placebo arms it's going to be hard to distinguish between the active drug even when it works even when you know the drug works right. okay whereas if it's very low then it's easy to distinguish and that's what determines whether it's statistically significant between mm-hmm. the two arms 
So the statistical significance is frequently driven by the context and the meaning that is uh, produced in Very those areas. It makes sense why so many studies, there's so few studies that can actually be replicated because probably when you try to replicate a study, there's slightly different meaning and cultural context in that new group of patients. That's correct. And, uh, and there's even drift over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 placebo treatments of any type have uh, gradually gotten better over time, no matter what you're doing. So if mm-hmm. you just look at the placebo arms mm-hmm. of drug studies for antidepressants, mm-hmm. the placebo arms consistently begin to perform better over time. Wow. So now it's actually more difficult to prove that a new antidepressant works because mm-hmm. the placebo part is, is responding. What, why that is, who knows? I mean, you know, we're maybe more open to and more involved in and, and uh, you know, more maybe we have better expectation as a culture that mm-hmm. uh, the treatment of depression is possible. Hmm. And interesting, while we're on depression, you had mentioned a study in the book about where, we, where I think it was done at NIH, where they were comparing sertraline and SSRI, yeah. St. John's wort, and then the placebo. And, you know, the purpose of the study was to compare all three of these treatments. In the end, they ended up, everyone basically had the same response to all three of the treatments. And of course, the drug company used that to say, hey, St. John's Ward is no better than than our drug. But interestingly, there was something that happened outside of the drug just by the process of being prescribed and taking this medication that helped people to heal their depression. Right. And the person running that study, I know very well, and he's a very kind, empathetic healer. <laughs> and I, so I wasn't surprised that the placebo response was pretty high in that in that aspect. Yeah, th- I did uh, that study or we we, we support funded that study when I ran the Office of Alternative Medicine at NIH. We were looking for a large uh, randomized control trial in a natural product that mm-hmm. we could do. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, uh, the FDA said, well, you should put in an active drug mm-hmm. uh, because uh, if it doesn't work, if the active drug doesn't work, then it means that, you know, you, it wasn't a fair test mm-hmm. of the... And I picked St. John's Wort because uh, I was stationed in Germany when I was in the military, mm-hmm. and I worked with the local German providers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did all of our transport. I ran a remote hospital. And uh, the Germans were routinely prescribing. The German physicians were routinely prescribing St. John's Wort mm-hmm. for depression. In fact, mm-hmm. it was prescribed more often than drugs were, than the standard uh, antidepressants were mm-hmm. by German physicians. And so, and they pointed me to research that most of which had been done in Germany saying that looked like it worked better than placebo. So I said, this is a good test, mm-hmm. all right, uh, to put in. And so we actually did uh, that study, which is rarely done nowadays, where there is a, a placebo arm, an active arm, mm-hmm. uh, and the test drug that you're trying to look at. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet those are very instructive studies. Uh, and it showed basically that the placebo part of the therapeutic intervention was so large that it wiped out both the effect it was no no, no it was an um, uh, uh, not statistically different from the not only the herb St. John's wort mm-hmm. but the drug also <laughs> in those areas so it actually wasn't a fair test yeah. uh, but that's not how it was reported because the drug <laughs> company wanted to show hey there's no competition here for us right right, right. <laughs> very interesting yeah um, and how you mentioned as well the kind of the drift in this placebo over time, you had also talked about a study that showed that even when people were told they were taking placebo, so they knew they weren't getting 
a quote unquote real drug, they were still seeing a positive response. Yeah. So um, I think this is an important area. It's called open placebo studies. Mm-hmm. The the field was launched by a friend of mine at Harvard by the name of uh, Ted uh, Kapchuk. You should have him on your show, actually. Oh, <laughs> you, should, you should interview him. <laughs> uh, he's probably one of the most uh, creative placebo researchers in huh. the country. Uh, or in the even in the world, um, and uh, what he did, and now there's been multiple studies demonstrating this, is that uh, uh, he asked the question of whether uh, the conscious belief, what the person thought if they were getting uh, a uh, an active drug or not, mm-hmm. how important was that? Because in almost all the placebo research up to that blinding people, that is not telling them which one they're on, Mm -hmm. was felt to be key. And so what he did is he said, well, I'm not going to blind them. I'm going to tell them that they're on a placebo or Mm -hmm. on an active. And then we'll say, well, if you just go through the process, the likelihood is just going through the process of taking a pill is Mm -hmm. is probably going to help you. Um, But you're on the placebo. Okay. Mm -hmm. You're on the sugar pill. And so he did that and he found that uh, the results were uh, almost equal to Uh if it had been blinded. The people got better just as uh, as to a greater degree as it were blinded, and so that launched the 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 field of open placebo, and that, now that's been demonstrated in multiple conditions, multiple mm-hmm. studies, including some fairly large ones. And what it illustrates is that it's it's uh, it's more than just in our head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the physiological response of healing actually emanates from our unconscious more than it does just what we're thinking about when mm-hmm. we're awake. And it's that belief that's embedded in the in the consciousness part, which then uh, combined with the ritual, which then signals to our body, the physiological po- processes, how to go about doing the healing. Mm-hmm. It's the intention combined with the ritual, combined with the cultural expectation that produces the bulk of the effect. Mm-hmm. And so going through rituals, uh, uh, through multiple studies, this explains uh, why so many different types of healing systems actually work, mm. <laughs> even though they're completely different. You know, yeah. Chinese medicine with en- with the energy and Ayurveda with consciousness and ours with mo- our molecular models and mm-hmm. that type of thing. Uh, they still largely work uh, if the culture believes in it, the physician believes in it. That's mm-hmm. very important. Physician needs to believe in it. Okay, mm-hmm. um, uh, and uh, and the ritual of therapy is properly delivered in a way that's caring, empathetic, and and enhancing that. Uh, I I wrote an article several years ago, and I actually put it in the book, where there's a checklist derived from placebo studies Mm -hmm. on saying, if you wanted to optimize the healing response, Mm -hmm. okay, what would you do? Okay, in any therapeutic encounter that you had, and there's about 14 or 15 things you could do to actually optimize healing. It's amazing. They probably all take a little bit of time, too, or a little bit you of know, thought, you a know, little bit of intention. Some of them do, mm-hmm. yes. Some of them take some time. Many of them don't. Okay. Uh, uh, many of them can actually be embedded mm-hmm. in uh, a delivery that uh, that doesn't take a whole lot of time. Um, positive expectation, uh, empathy, listening mm-hmm. to the patient, um, mm-hmm. uh, touching the patient mm-hmm. makes a big difference. 
poking them seems to be pretty <laughs> pretty powerful too because they think they're getting if the culture believes that yeah. poking is going to do that yeah. uh, needles for example a placebo uh-huh. uh, pain treatment delivered through a needle in a culture that believes in injections is mm-hmm. will produce a bigger placebo response than a pill hmm. uh, and then take any more time it's maybe right. not something that you want to want to do but uh, <laughs> if you can do other things yeah. uh, some of them do take time mm-hmm. uh, some uh, and and what I've uh, tried to do in the model uh, the uh, that I write about in the book is how do we actually take the core of this and actually implement it on our day-to-day practice mm-hmm. easily within the amount of time that we have mm-hmm. so that you can enhance whatever you're doing and that the patient can be a key part of this. Mm-hmm. This is, this is key. Um, uh, uh, several uh, studies uh, that are done by uh, Laya Crum from Stanford I write about in the book. Yeah. She has a center for uh, studying what she calls mindset. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and uh, it doesn't require, uh, r- shifting the mindset doesn't require um, a lot of time. Uh, let me give you an example mm-hmm. of that. Um, this was a very large study. It wasn't done by Laya Crum. It was d- done by another um, uh, practitioner uh, in England. Very large study. It was done in family medicine practices. They don't call them there, that there. Call them general practices. General practice, there. GP. <laughs> this was like 500 or so general practices, a large number of patients. And once the person had come in, seen the general practitioner, if they had something that there was not a physical thing they had to shift, mm-hmm. okay, if it was a functional thing, if it was pain, it was, to, you know, depression or something like that, which is about 60% of what comes into uh, to medical practices mm-hmm. and especially primary care. They randomized patients to uh, two statements. Um, the title of the, the study was, is there any point to being positive? Okay. <laughs> that was the question that they asked. Uh-huh. And uh, so uh, one statement was sort of a neutral or negative statement like, well, I don't know what you have. Mm-hmm. Um, you could try this. Okay. And, you know, I don't know if it'll work or not, mm-hmm. but, you know, if you have any more problems, just give me a call. Right. Okay. <laughs> the other statement was, you know, very positive, a positive therapeutic ritual. Um, uh, here, you know, I think what you have is is going to improve okay most functional things do improve so that's Mm -hmm. a true statement Uh, why don't you take this okay and if you have any more problems let me know Mm -hmm. (laughs) okay so very positive it took no different in time right it it took exact same amount of time to do that and in four weeks they had independent people blindly call these patients up and ask them how they were doing Mm -hmm. they they actually gave them a, a placebo pill and it was a small amount of vitamin B6 as okay. a placebo pill uh, and uh, they called them up and said well how's your problem you know is it getting better do you need to come back in etc mm-hmm. and uh, 60% of the people who had had the positive response same treatment uh, said no it's all gone I'm doing fine don't need to come back in versus only about 42 I think or 45% wow. uh, in the ones that had, had the negative mm-hmm. statement so uh, that was highly clinical Clinically significant, highly statistically mm-hmm. significant, didn't take any more time. Right. Little things, but can make a huge difference. Little main things make a big difference. If you yeah. understand the underlying mm-hmm. um, biology mm-hmm. and the underlying evidence, mm-hmm. uh, and then incorporate that into your practice. Another really interesting concept that you talked about from an example in the book was the idea of training the body to learn to activate a certain response by taking a placebo with a drug and then backing off on the drug. And I think the example used was a young woman who had autoimmune kidney disease and she sort of trained herself to, instead of taking this um, immunosuppressant, 
to train herself to get that same response by smelling roses. Yes. yes. So, and you, and you actually, you can test that the patient is activating those same biological pathways that they would when they're taking the drug, but they're in fact just using this learned response. Yes. So this is one of the mechanisms whereby the meaning response or the placebo response works. Mm -hmm. Uh, Since we've taken the lid off of this, and several years ago I helped to form a society that is now called the Society of Interdisciplinary Placebo Studies, Mm -hmm. or SIPS. And if your listeners are interested (laughs) in that, their annual or semi-annual conference is starting next week in the Netherlands. Oh. Uh, They have a website uh, called uh, Placebo Research and uh, you can just look up SIPs and they Mm -hmm. have a journal that comes out every month. Uh, What they've done is they've taken the lid off of placebo and said, well, what are the underlying mechanisms? And there are a number of them, but there's three primary ones. Mm -hmm. One is belief and expectation that we just talked about. Mm -hmm. A second is the ritual process, Mm -hmm. uh, the the social learning. They call it social learning Mm -hmm. process uh, that we talked about. Uh, The third one is what you've just uh, asked about, which is conditioning. Now, this is classical conditioning. This is just like Pavlov's dogs, mm-hmm. right? You feed them, you ring the bell, they <laughs> salivate, <laughs> okay? Then you do that a few times, and then you ring the bell and they salivate, right? Mm-hmm. This is exactly the same thing. You take a pill, it has a therapeutic effect, and then you associate something that's not an effective treatment with it, but something that stimulates the senses, like mm-hmm. Kool-Aid or the rose mm-hmm. uh, that this particular patient had. Uh, and you pair those a few times, and your body actually learns how to do that and physiologically learns how to do it. It's all unconscious. It's automatic. You can do it with animals. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's in fact, it was discovered first with animals before they tested it in humans. And then you can begin to withdraw the active drug Mm -hmm. and just do the non-drug and the body has learned it and the body will continue to respond in these, uh, in these areas. Um, and that conditioning response probably goes on all the time in practice, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we take a pill. The pill is a self-care therapeutic component. Mm-hmm. If we then feel better, that act of taking a pill is a the conditioned um, uh, stimulus that goes along with the, the relief. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the pill itself, just taking the pill, is active. And uh, this has been elicited, uh, discovered in placebo research, too. Uh, if you take a pill for, let's say, ulcers uh, and you reduce the amount of pills that you're taking from say four a day to two a day mm-hmm. uh, then you'll get up to 12 people that will not respond from having just reduced it to two a day and this wow. was looked at in the placebo arms of studies where they actually did two versus four mm-hmm. and they found those that took the pill four a day of the placebo arm got significant healed significantly more often than wow. those that had the, the two pill. and this is the conditioning response happening all the time uh, in our in our uh, environment and drug companies are constantly trying to get less pills right, right. they'll take one a day right. but they don't account <laughs> for the fact that taking less pills is going to offset uh, some of the therapeutic self-care and conditioning Very that will go on in those areas. They don't they don't account for that. They they don't look at that. Mm-hmm. They just look at it compared to one-on-one. Right, the dose of right. full dose in the morning versus half in the morning, half at night. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Now, do you know if when you have that condition response does that apply to side effects too? Yes, it does. Absolutely. There's been uh, quite a bit of research looking at the side effects mm-hmm. uh, in the placebo arms of studies for different kinds mm-hmm. of drugs. And they found that the side effects uh, 
correspond with the uh, with the drug side effects. Wow. Uh, this probably comes from a it may be from conditioning, but it, it probably comes from expectation, mm. belief and expectation. Mm-hmm. Because when you go into a study, you have to be told what the potential downside yeah. side effects would be in those areas, and uh, and so the patients know what to expect, and then that increases the likelihood of getting those mm-hmm. uh, effects, uh, and it increases the likelihood of getting the ones on the drug that you know right. you're actually being tested about. Right. You know the the uh, the mechanisms of self healing can be very specific. Uh, for example, if you condition somebody to get pain relief with a uh, narcotic, an opioid, mm-hmm. it will inter- it will have its effect through the opioid receptors in the body and the brain, and you can reverse that with Narca- Narcan. That's a, a naloxone. That's mm-hmm. a drug that reverses uh, opioid by influencing or inhibiting the receptor there. And that's actually what's now being given out to help revive people that have overdosed on Narcan. But you can reverse the pain relief of an opioid if you give somebody Narcan through that receptor. If you condition somebody to get pain relief through a non-opioid receptor, let's Mm -hmm. say non-steroidal, it will use, the body will use a different receptor that you can't reverse with Narcan in those areas. So it actually knows uh, not only how to reduce and improve the pain, it knows which receptor to use. That's amazing. (laughs) The body is amazing. (laughs) The body is pretty amazing. And and the role and the power of our collective mind, our Uh social mind, the cultural components and our belief and the rituals Mm -hmm. uh, really is, uh, I I call it in the book, the sleeping elephant of healthcare. Mm -hmm. If we finally wake up to it, pay attention to it, uh, not only will it disrupt a lot of what we're doing in, you know, the drug industry, for Mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But it'll also open up a whole smorgasbord of options for us to enhance any therapy, including drugs Mm -hmm. uh, that we might be using. And and this is this is true as well for not just, like you said, drugs, but lifestyle interventions. So you mentioned a couple uh, examples of this. One, I think, was by Elia Crum from Stanford of exercise and the expectations about movement and health and is this really from the exercise we're doing or is it from the meaning that we create around exercise is healthy for me and it's going to help me to become healthier and so I think she did an experiment with hotel workers um, that was very interesting Yes, that's right. And, and your CrossFit audience will probably be a little skeptical of this study, although it's been repeated now several times. She's done a subsequent study, actually, that's okay. confirmed it and actually looked at underlying mechanisms. Uh in, in this study, she had hotel workers that were pretty physically active, mm-hmm. you know, changing, you know, beds and cleaning rooms mm-hmm. all day. It's, you know, it's a lot of work. Yeah. And uh, she uh, communicated to one group all the physical benefits and health benefits that they were incurring. Mm-hmm. And then the other group, she just told them they were, you know, getting some exercise but didn't communicate any of that. And then she put uh, uh, monitors on them to mm-hmm. see what their actual physical work was. And... Uh, found that the ones who were expecting that that work is going to improve their health had actually uh, increased their weight loss, reduced their cholesterol, and helped with their blood pressure. Wow. <laughs> okay. That's Compared to those that, you know, did the same amount of work but uh, but uh, didn't do that. This happens with food, too. Mm-hmm. Okay. We're so fixated uh, in uh, the Western culture that, gee, the health benefits of food must be due to the chemicals in the food. Mm-hmm. That's right. And that's mm-hmm. why we have all these diets of, you know, high fat, low fat, you right. know. 
you know, paleo, uh, you know, vegan, uh, keto, vegan, exactly. <laughs> and it's all over the map because mm-hmm. it's a lot more complex than the chemicals <laughs> that are in there. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, this has been shown in a number of studies where they've looked at, uh, for example, in the Mediterranean diet, mm-hmm. uh, they've looked at gene expression uh, from ingestion of the Mediterranean diet. Uh, but then there was a researcher that when he was studying this, noticed that, well, nobody ever just ate the food, okay? Mm-hmm. They actually prepared it. It was in a social environment. They sat down. They were right. talking. Uh, uh, you know, you could smell it, etc. So he began to test their genes prior to them eating and found mm-hmm. that some of the, most of those same genes that were attributed to the food mm-hmm. were turned on before they ever took a bite. Wow. Uh, it's that conditioning again. It's the conditioning <laughs> part again, exactly. And uh, and uh, uh, some interest, some very interesting studies I write about in a book mm-hmm. about uh, the hormones, uh, appetite hormones that can be changed with that. Yeah. And I'll leave it to your listeners to read the book and find out yeah. that story. The one, you'll have to read the book, read the one about the, it was a smoothie or a shake. Right. That one was... Right. Very interesting. Exactly. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. Is it the content or is it the expectation? Right. Uh, and the belief and the ritual that uh, that right. your culture has, especially uh, around when, what you're eating. Yeah, yeah, we're living in a culture where so much of us are mindlessly eating or right. multitasking, eating while we're doing other things, regardless of whether it's food that's good for us or bad for us. It's more about what our expectation is and what we're. Right. Kind of our process, like right. you mentioned. If we could all be in that Mediterranean mindset, maybe things would be a little That's better. That's <laughs> exactly right. It's more than just the food, isn't it? Um, you know, this is one reason why I say that uh, the core of how to implement and activate healing in your life actually goes through uh, sort of the mind and spirit component. Mm-hmm. It's the meaning and the purpose component of mm-hmm. that. And there have been many studies showing that those who have purpose and meaning or doing something, especially they're doing something uh, beyond just something for themselves. Mm-hmm. They're actually doing something for their family or their group or the the, na- or the world. Mm-hmm. Um, that People with those kinds of uh, mindsets mm-hmm. live longer by far, even with and other things are the same, even when their behavioral and lifestyle things are controlled for. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a salutogenic and, and uh, uh, health producing and longevity producing process. And, and so in the book, I talk about, first of all, finding your meaning and then attaching it to the thing that that you can do to enhance your health. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of things that you can do to enhance your health. Um, and, it, uh, you know, it, uh, it, it might involve diet. A lot of my patients come in and they want to use diet as a way to do that. It might mm-hmm. involve exercise. Some do that. In the military setting, they do that a lot. Mm-hmm. Okay? It's embedded in their culture. Uh, stress and stress management is a huge issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so very frequently people are, are imbalanced in their brains ability to manage their own stress mm-hmm. because they're constantly stimulating the fight and flight system mm-hmm. and they're under exercising the part of their brain that uh, induces relaxation response and healing response uh, lack of sleep that type of thing and so there's multiple ways that one can start on the process of healing but it's got to be connected to what's meaningful for you and it's got to be doable for you mm-hmm. once you start that and you see you're successful then it gets easier and easier and easier Mm -hmm. in those areas but it starts with that central part uh and that's the organizational principle and if you if you if you believe that and you do that then this confusing array of what should i do 
gets very simplified. Right. Okay. Because it says, okay, start with what is important for you. Mm-hmm. Don't do something where there's evidence that it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's where the doc ought to come in and help bring in the evidence and that type of thing. And then work with your family, work with your community, work with your teams, work with a health coach if your health system has that mm-hmm. to actually begin to make those changes. And mm-hmm. once that happens, then uh, you'll get improvement in those areas. I'll tell you an example. Uh, do we have time for one more? Oh, we have plenty of time. Yeah, time. we have a little bit of time. So I had a, um, a, a patient that came in to see me um, uh, several years ago, actually, uh, who had had 20 years of chronic back pain mm-hmm. and about everything you could think of used on it, right? Mm-hmm. Including injections and electrical units and surgery and alternative approaches and acupuncture and that type of thing. Um, he had some you know, pretty refractory back pain. Um, he couldn't really function very well. He was on a lot of medications, including opioids. Uh, and so I stepped back and I did an integrative health visit using a, a tool that I call the Hope Note, which starts by asking him what matters. Mm-hmm. And I said, if you didn't have any back pain, what's the most important thing for you? What would you do? What brings you joy? Mm-hmm. Okay. And this was a, he was a retired uh, fellow who'd been in the military. Terry and um, and he said, "Well, the very first thing I would do is I would get in my car and I would drive the five hours that I need to down to North Carolina, and I'd get on the floor to play with my grandkids wow. because I can't do that right now and it's killing me." Mm-hmm. Okay, and so I said, "Okay." There's his purpose, right? Okay. So I took him over to the physical therapist, mm-hmm. and I told the physical therapist he needs to get up and down off the floor. So we stopped trying to treat his pain, Mm -hmm. okay? We tried to help him accomplish his goal. And I said, this is going to hurt, okay? This is going to be tough Mm -hmm. for you. This is, you know, uh, this is not, you know, you're on pain medications Mm -hmm. and this is going to hurt. I can't control all of that. He said, I don't care if if it'll work. Now, it took her a while, the physical therapist, to Mm -hmm. work with him to build his core strength. Mm -hmm. You know, every day he had to work on this and it did hurt. It Mm -hmm. took about three or four weeks before he had the core strength where he could get up and down off the floor. He still had a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. But after about four weeks, he called me up and he had driven down North Carolina and got down on the floor and played. Wow. He told me, Doc, thank you, thank you, thank you. You know what? Mm-hmm. He kept that exercise up. That's okay. Amazing. Now he's hooked, right? Yeah. He kept that exercise up and about six to seven months later, his pain is less. Mm-hmm. He's now, you know, going off a lot of his medications. You know, we treated his pain after 20 years of trying about everything under the sun. That's amazing so important to connect you know you can imagine he's probably had been through courses of physical therapy in the past i can imagine over the years but making that connection to what he really cared about how powerful that he was in the driver's seat Mm -hmm. okay and it just took a few tools like that to Mm -hmm. do it and that's the way you kind of organize it yeah Mm -hmm. and so true especially in today's world where i think especially a lot of people listening to this podcast it's easy to get overwhelmed by all the things out there that can supposedly help improve your health and no single person is going to be able to meditate 20 minutes twice a day and cook all their meals and eat perfectly and exercise and all these things but you don't have to do all of it right like you said you start with what's most meaningful and helps you to achieve the meaning that you or the purpose that you have and then 
build from there. Right, exactly. For people that are really into physical fitness, mm-hmm. okay, uh, I like to tell talk to them about what um, uh, mind-body practices do for the brain. Yes. It's, uh, it's uh, parallels physical fitness. Uh, a lot of times I'll ask my patients, you know, well, do you have any stresses? And they mm-hmm. may say, they may say, oh, yeah, I have a lot, or they may say I have a little. Mm-hmm. But then when I ask them what they do for stress management, they think that it's turning on the TV, reading a book, mm-hmm. relaxing, or having a drink, or mm-hmm. something like that, right, in the end. Uh, but that's actually not uh, the purpose of stress management. The purpose of stress management was described more accurately uh, by Herbert Benson, one of the mm-hmm. fathers of mind-body medicine from Harvard, uh, uh, when he called it the relaxation response. It's a physiological response. But the problem is it's not relaxation. It's actually exercise. Mm-hmm. So when you're go-go-going all the time, that is a stimulation of what's called the sympathetic nervous system. It's one of the two parts of your autonomic nervous system. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can't be going and the relaxation part, which is the parasympathetic nervous system, can't be turned on full speed at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. They balance each other out. Yep. And we have a society in which uh, the sympathetic nervous system is getting stimulated all the time. And it doesn't have to feel like stress, okay? It's just like, I'm busy, okay, mm-hmm. I got to do this. Uh, and what happens is that uh, if you were to exercise just one muscle and not balance it with the other muscle, mm-hmm. pretty soon you wouldn't be able to actually move the other way, right? right? That muscle would atrophy. And that's what happens with the parasympathetic nervous system. It atrophies. And then we end up getting uh, uh, less ability to manage stress when it comes along, sleep issues, inflammatory processes go up, digestion problems incur mm-hmm. from that because this parasympathetic helps with the digestive system, multiple chronic uh, problems. And so I like people to think about as brain exercise. Mm-hmm. If you were exercising the parasympathetic part, and the way you do that is through some type of relaxation response exercise, mm-hmm. that this actually strengthens that part of your brain. And this has been shown in MRI studies, okay? If you engage in a deep relaxation 20 minutes a day, and there's a variety of ways to do that, but if you do that for eight weeks, you actually grow the left frontal cortex in your brain, which makes it easier to control the fight, flight, and sympathetic response. It makes Mm -hmm. it easier to sleep. It makes it it easier to go into this healing uh, state. You're actually building the brain muscle. Mm -hmm. And just like you know, one exercise doesn't fit all for mm-hmm. everybody, although for some people CrossFit might, but some <laughs> might not. Some yeah. might like to swim. Some might like to, you know, walk. Some mm-hmm. might like to run or ride. Uh, it's the same thing with brain exercise. Uh, the relaxation response can be induced through um, meditation. It can be uh, induced through mindfulness-based uh, stress reduction. It can be induced through imagery. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can be induced through uh, biofeedback. Uh, one of my favorites is heart rate variability Me biofeedback. Too. <laughs> okay, uh, it's it's just getting into that yes. deep relaxation zone, and that grows the strength of your uh, mind and your brain to actually do many of these things mm-hmm. uh, that enhance healing that we've been talking about. Right, and so important, and so you know, I like how you mentioned there's so many different ways you can do that, but. Like you said, a lot of people would think maybe watching TV or relaxing on the couch is strengthening this parasympathetic system, but not necessarily the case. Similarly, I hear a lot of people saying, well, exercise is my stress relief. That's how I handle stress. And Mm -hmm. that is, you know, a good way, you know, exercise is healthy. It's a good way to help, um, 
handle stress, but you can't do that in replacement of not of training your parasympathetic system. That's like you correct. said, when you're exercising, your parasympathetic system is not on. That's correct. No, that's correct. And and just like with physical exercise, if you're doing it regularly, mm-hmm. okay, then it doesn't take as much to keep it and maintain it strong, mm-hmm. right? Okay. If you're really out poorly conditioned and mm-hmm. you want to get conditioned, it's going to take a lot of work to get right. to that spot. Same way with the brain. If you haven't been using it, et cetera, then, uh, you know, it's going to take your 20 to 30 minutes a day for a long time to mm-hmm. build it up. But once it's there, then you can actually maintain it with, you know, a much lower level of, of exercise mm-hmm. or, or intermittent component mm-hmm. using things like, you know, deep breathing regularly, you know, just built into your day. Right. For you have that in your back pocket. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You also talk a lot about our environment and how our environment can invoke a healing response or something that's more stressful. That's correct. The physical environment has a profound effect on our body and our mind. Uh, The ancient traditions have known this for a long time. They Mm -hmm. actually utilize uh, the the physical environment. Uh, I write about the Japanese art of forest bathing. Yes. Uh, And I had a patient who actually healed herself by doing that. That's uh, amazing. That I write about in the book who had uh, some pretty severe chronic illnesses. Um, And the research now shows that if you spend sort of, uh, you know, just one weekend out in nature, you know, mm-hmm. hiking, immersed in nature, that it bumps your uh, natural killer cells up in your body by a significant amount. I think it's about 40%. Wow. And that gets maintained for another for about a week to 10 days. Okay? That's amazing. In those areas. And there's lots of effects like that. Mm-hmm. The exposure to the physical environment is there. There's a wonderful book that I refer to uh, in there done by uh, a 30-year NIH researcher who's now at the University of Arizona, mm-hmm. Esther Sternberg, uh, that talks about uh, how the physical environment influences the body mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, in some dramatic ways and how then you can create an optimal healing environment yes. uh, uh, you know, to enhance that healing. And it's why it's one of the four sort of dimensions that I ask all my patients about or I recommend at the end of the book that mm-hmm. people ask themselves about uh, uh, what's their physical environment like. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, my wife uh, had uh, breast cancer a few years ago and we knew she was undergoing, you know, some pretty serious surgery and chemotherapy and that type of thing. Uh, and so as she was exploring what would help support her, Social components, friends, family were a key part of that. Mm-hmm. We had a young grandchild that mm-hmm. she loved and wanted to be uh, still be with uh, with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she also uh, realized that she had to have a place that she could go to to truly deeply relax and recover as she went through those kinds of treatments. And so uh, she modified her bedroom wow. in a way that had low-level light, had mm-hmm. some of the art that was personally meaningful to mm-hmm. her on the wall and nothing else. Mm-hmm. Uh, that had natural light that Mm -hmm. that came in, soothing colors. We switched the bed out so that she felt comfortable with it Mm -hmm. and that type of thing. And that was sort of her recovery haven. And when she, as she went through the treatments over several months, she would go there and it would help her actually recover and function and function better Mm -hmm. uh, as she was going through that. So that's another example of creating an optimal healing environment uh, uh, that can have an effect on, on, you know, the physiological and the psychological and in her case, the social. Oh, absolutely. Impact. Yeah. And speaking of the social, one other example I wanted to bring up, we I think the CrossFit community and listeners are very aware of how important social relationships are. And that's what a part 
part of, I think, what makes our CrossFit affiliate so strong is that there is a very strong bond that develops among members. Um, but you mentioned a study that was done with rabbits and how the impact of love for these rabbits, what that had on their cardiovascular disease, um, which is something, you know, you, we know that stress obviously has a huge impact on the development of cardiovascular disease, but I never heard such a great example of the way that love could kind of protect us. That's right. No, that was a fascinating study. It came about just by chance. Back in the 60s when uh, the cholesterol hypothesis was just emerging that mm -hmm. high cholesterol might contribute to cardiovascular disease, one of the um, a study uh, models was done with rabbits mm -hmm. as an animal. And what they would do is they would feed rabbits high cholesterol diets. And you can imagine that. Here's a vegetarian <laughs> on a high cholesterol <laughs> diet, right? What is uh, and, this? And, and would routinely produce pretty significant heart disease, uh -huh. okay? And they would use this to study the mechanisms. And then uh, in one of these, and it was being done all over the world, this type of research, and in one of the laboratories, uh, they noticed that certain uh, rabbits uh, were not getting it, even though they were still getting the high cholesterol diets, mm -hmm. they weren't getting the heart disease. And uh, so they didn't know why that was, but then they noticed the pattern was that they were all along the bottom mm -hmm. shelves and not in the higher shelves. And as it turned out, there was an animal handler who was short couldn't reach the higher shelves so somebody else would take care of the higher shelves mm -hmm. and she would go in on the lower shelves and she while she was cleaning the cages she would take the rabbits out mm -hmm. she would hold them in her lap and she would pet them and talk to them and Aww. sing to them <laughs> before she put them back in mm -hmm. and so you know the, the director of the lab was saying this couldn't really be what was going on mm -hmm. that couldn't do it so they did a formal study where they randomized pay, uh, rabbits to get love mm -hmm. Uh, or no love <laughs> uh, in the cages. And sure enough, uh, just taking the rabbits out and petting them and singing to them and love wow. them reduced cardiovascular disease by over 60%, percent, as huge. much as the cholesterol lowering did. Wow. Uh, but you couldn't patent it. You couldn't make money off of it. <laughs> so now we take uh, things to lower cholesterol, but we don't tell our patients to go find love and right. express love, right? <laughs> so that's a huge thing we can take advantage <laughs> you of. You bet. So I ask all my patients about their social support. Mm -hmm. This has been shown uh, you know, beyond. Mm -hmm rabbits, obviously. Yes. <laughs> uh, but social support is a core part of staying healthy, keeping healthy, and even healing. Mm -hmm. And so I ask all my patients about their social support. Uh, and if they're lonely, and if, uh, if they don't have a social support, then one of the main things I offer to them or try to help them with is to identify uh, a way of getting that through a club or through, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, um, uh, some kind of a social activity or a companion or something mm -hmm. like that that can help support that process. One more example I want to bring up, going back to more of the mental and um, spiritual component is visualization. And you mentioned it as one of the things that you can do, you, guided imagery is one of the things you can do to bring up that parasympathetic tone, but it's something that we use in sport all the time. Athletes yes. use visualization to practice their perfect execution of their plan and everything going according to the way that they've trained. But it's something that I think, and myself having done that as an athlete, now thinking, why don't I just apply this to my day-to-day -day life? There's so many things that I could probably impact by visualizing them beforehand. Um, and I know it's used, you know, for people in business or various other careers, but it's something that can be used for our health too. You bet. And you gave a great example of 
a patient with pneumonia using visualization of the air going into his lungs and how that had an impact. Right. But so many ways that we can visualize what's happening in our body and help to maximize that healing. Yes. No, I think uh, your experience in sport, and I'm sure you know the, the research showing that just the mental um, visualization of the sport can have mm-hmm. a pretty uh, a profound impact on the physical performance, mm-hmm. even if a person's not able to actually do yeah. the full physical practice of that. And you're, you're right. Uh, this is a great way for people to get uh, empowered by and get tools to change their own physiology. There's been quite a bit of research on this. Mm-hmm. A lot of it around perioperative care, for example, um, uh, in which visualizing low bleeding, rapid healing, et cetera, actually then results in improved, mm-hmm. uh, you know, less bleeding and mm-hmm. improved healing in those areas. It should become part of a routine aspect of perioperative care, in my opinion. We've done a lot of work, and I uh, I put this on my website, actually, with a woman uh, who does visualization specifically for clinical uh, okay. conditions, pain, uh, sleep, depression, insomnia, mm-hmm. this type of thing. Her name is Belaruth Naprasak. Yes. And, uh, she has all the guided imagery podcasts. Exactly. And, uh, and so on my website, uh, you can actually download for free several of hers mm-hmm. and she has very inexpensive, uh, approaches that, uh, many of which have been tested. We mm-hmm. tested several in randomized control trials, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and uh, shown them to be very effective. These are simple. These are easy to deliver. You can get them for very inexpensive mm-hmm. off of uh, off of the web. You can put them into your phone. You can engage in them. Not only do they de- uh, de- deliver the um, a relaxation response, but they also actually help train your body mm-hmm. how to physiologically respond in particular ways that you want to do. So that's highly recommended. Yeah. I, I, I offer that. Uh, to all my patients that come in with chronic illness. Getting two for one. (laughs) That's right. Get two for one. Exactly. (laughs) Well, I want to start wrapping up. I have a few more questions. So Mm -hmm. one is just for people who are listening. We have physicians or various people working in healthcare who may be listening. How can they tap into this extra 80% of healing? And then likewise for patients, other than reading, starting by reading your book, of course, how can they start to tap into this extra 80%? Yeah. So I'm asked uh, about this a lot, mm-hmm. and especially by people that are working within healthcare systems that are pretty stressful, mm-hmm. pretty fast, that uh, require lots of procedures, mm-hmm. of 15 to 20 minute visits. Right. Uh, volume over value uh, is unfortunately uh, you know what we still have embedded in mm-hmm. healthcare uh, in in our system. It's a sort of an acute care model, and so they want to know: Are there simple ways I can begin to do whole person integrative health mm-hmm. in my practice? So, I've gotten so many questions about that that uh, the foundation that I work for has said, "Why don't you take some of your time and your team and begin to build tools that people can imp- implement in their practice?" now Mm -hmm. in the types of practices that they're in Mm -hmm. and that people can actually utilize in their lives now without having to go through any kind of particular special training Mm -hmm. or without having to change in the the practice. So we're now doing a lot of this. And so we're putting those resources on my website that you can do. And these are things like the imagery components Mm -hmm. that you can bring out. Um, The one for a practice that I like the best and that I encourage uh, healthcare providers to do and I encourage patients to 
ask for mm-hmm. to do in partnership with their healthcare providers is something called the Hope Note. Yes. Okay. Yes. And this is a, a a simple tool. You prepare for it with something called the personalized health inventory, where you just ask a set of questions about mm-hmm. what matters and what are you ready to do and mm-hmm. what would you like to do. Then the Hope Note actually asks about the four dimensions of healing that I described. Uh, I've learned out of having looked at these uh, health systems from around the world over the years. Uh, and then uh, at the end, a personalized health plan. And that personalized health plan usually picks one or two things that you want to change. Mm-hmm. And then you focus on that uh, uh, and then work with a medical assistant, a health coach, sometimes a friend or a life coach to just accomplish that particular goal in those areas. Uh, and that process actually works pretty well. If if uh, if uh, you're a provider and you can then organize so your medical assistants are trained appropriately in health coaching mm-hmm. and they can actually be the ones to do it. Mm-hmm. I find that medical assistants and formal health coach trained are much better mm-hmm. than physicians are and medical providers are. <laughs> I'm actually not very Probably. good at it, right? I'm trying to say, oh, do this, do that. That's yeah. not the way you do it. Okay. There's a whole evidence base for how behavior change occurs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, uh, groups work really well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, if if a person gets engaged in a group activity, they can learn from the, the other people in the group mm-hmm. who are then moving forward in those same things how to address challenges and issues that come up in those areas. And so um, I encourage uh, all of my, um, uh, my, my uh, practices and providers that, we're, we're, we, that we train uh, to consider doing group visits uh, and doing shared decision-making uh, and reorganize their teams. It doesn't take more money. It just takes a little change in how it's reorganized. And they can deliver this within the system that they have right now. And so uh, the bottom line is uh, implement a HOPE note. Mm-hmm. Do an integrative health visit, and if you're a, a provider and you want your per, your practitioner to do it, go in and say, I'd like you to do an integrative health visit with me. I'd like to go over the other 80% that mm-hmm. will keep me healthy. Uh, and if they say, what's that? Then point them to the website or point them to the book and say, here's the tools. This yeah. is how to do it. And try it out. Love it. Um, what are some of the things that you implement in your day-to-day life to maximize this 80%. I don't know if you have Mm -hmm. kind of a typical day in your life and how that goes, if you would mind sharing that with us. Well, it varies a lot. I travel a fair mm-hmm. amount. Uh, I still see patients every week. And so uh, and it's in a, a standard family medicine clinic mm-hmm. and, uh, and that type of thing. Uh, and so uh, what I found uh, over the years for me that really paying attention to what gives me joy, mm-hmm. uh, what I love uh, is, uh, is, um, is key to kind of keeping balanced and keeping focused on those areas. Uh, I eat a Mediterranean diet as much as possible mm-hmm. because that has the most evidence of any diet that's around mm-hmm. for its health benefits, mind and body in mm-hmm. those areas. Uh, it's not a vegetarian diet. Um, it's, uh, it's a particular diet with high fruits and nuts. It is very heavily vegetarian-based fish, olive oils, that type of thing. Um, um, I, you can easily find how to do that, mm-hmm. how to do recipes on that type of thing. I exercise regularly, and that includes uh, uh, an alternating aerobic exercise and strength and stretching. So mm-hmm. I'll do strength and stretching one day, and then I'll do aerobic exercise. I'm a runner. I learned how to run a long time ago. <laughs> I love running, but I also ski and do other you know, mm-hmm. sports in those areas. Um, uh, 
I found over the years that I used to meditate quite a bit. I found that I've been able to actually incorporate mm-hmm. mind-body practices sort of into my routine. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the beautiful things about the mindfulness movement that uh, John Kabat-Zinn sort of brought in and expanded mm-hmm. in this country uh, and that is now done at a variety of places, in Washington and University of Rochester and others, um, uh, is that uh, sort of once you get it, once that brain muscle is working, then it's pretty easy to elicit. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's, it's pretty easy to turn on. You have to keep practicing it. Yeah. Okay, and one of the best ways to practice it is to uh, appreciate uh, what you have, mm-hmm. and not just say, "Oh, just I'm lucky." Mm-hmm. Okay, but to actually uh, make an appreciation list and think about three things that you're grateful for mm-hmm. in the morning and in the evening. And that simple tool actually has been shown to not only improve social relationships, improve joy, Mm -hmm. uh, but for health professionals that are faced with it, it reduces burnout in busy lives. And so those are things I try to incorporate regularly into my life every single day. Amazing. Well, I think that overlapped with my next question. So I have three questions I always end with on the podcast. And I have a great family, by the way. Oh, of course. Of course. The love you have to put in there, too. Absolutely. (laughs) I have a three-year-old grandchild. I've got three kids. I have a wonderful wife. uh, And I have friends. I have a lot of friends that, that, you know, we go hiking and Mm -hmm. do things together. uh, And you got to have to spend time with that. It's not a waste of time. No. It's not a waste of time. (laughs) Um, So the first question. I think you already answered, but maybe you can just reiterate, would be the three things you do on a regular basis that have the biggest positive impact on your health. Mm -hmm. So one is gratitude. Mm -hmm. Okay. The other is spending time with my family. Okay. Okay. Uh, The third is paying attention to a Mediterranean diet. Okay. Uh, And... um, the three things. You three only things. Three. Yeah, those are three. <laughs> well, then, then I, I exercise in a mm-hmm. way that I said, uh, you know, uh, sleep is extremely important mm-hmm. and we're sleep deprived. Uh, um, and so uh, getting sleep is uh, and making sure that the environment in which you sleep mm-hmm. uh, is in, inductive to deep sleep. And there's ways to do that. I actually have a, a tool set on my website mm-hmm. on sleep hygiene that describes how to set up the room to make sure to help in do sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, those are the core things. Yeah. Okay. Keep those it simple. Are, those are the core <laughs> things. Right. It is, it is quite yeah. simple, actually. Uh, and, you know, if you can't do them all in a day, which you can't, okay, then just make sure you do them all in a week. Mm-hmm. Okay. Or make sure you pick one and say, okay, this one I'm going to improve. I'm mm-hmm. going to begin to embed that so that it becomes, you know, uh, regular and routine mm-hmm. in my life. What is there one thing that you know would have a big impact on your health, but you have a hard time implementing it, or it's one that you mm-hmm. seem to not find a way to, to get into your routine as, as easily as the others. Yeah. Writing poetry. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I used to write a lot of poetry. I have okay. a poetry book that I've been holding on for oh. a while and thinking about publishing. And uh, <laughs> for some reason, I don't know why I haven't published it yet. It's all ready. Uh-huh. I just need to get it out to the yeah, publisher. Okay. Now you're talking um, about it. You can get it out there. <laughs> I will do that. Now I've committed, right? So uh, it's forcing me to do it. That's the one thing I haven't to do is, so actually say I'm going to do, say you're going to do something yeah. actually helps. Yeah. Uh, and I love to write poetry. Okay. It, uh, it, uh, it causes you to pause, uh, or if you pause, it emerges, and it links that um, 
what should I say? It links the spiritual world uh, 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 that is so that subtle, uh, the uh, the unconscious world that influences so much of what happens in our life, including bringing us joy and meeting and health, as we've talked about, with the conscious life. And we, you know, spend a lot of time in our conscious world. Uh, and our unconscious world is going on all the time. Mm-hmm. And when you expand consciousness to try to incorporate both of those, uh, then that's when healing really emerges in, it, in, its, in its fullest flower. And I find poetry actually does that for me. Mm-hmm. It allows me to cross across the threshold between mm-hmm. the conscious and the unconscious uh, and allow them to communicate with each other. Art can do that in, mm-hmm. in a variety of ways. It mm-hmm. Mine happens to be poetry, but some people do it with painting. Some people do it with music, music yeah. uh, in those areas. But, you know, you have um, you have a core part, whether you call it a spiritual, you call it a soul, you call it the inner life. Uh, it's, uh, it's actually been proven in experiments in the laboratory, mm-hmm. which I didn't go into a lot in my book, but maybe that'll be part of my next book, yeah. um, uh, that uh, there's a non-local factor in human existence mm-hmm. and the non-local factor is uh, is right now a mystery it's not explained completely mm-hmm. uh, by what we experience in everyday life or even the experiments that we do in in, in standard western uh, science uh, it's there it's been proven uh, we don't actually know what it is. They talk about it in quantum uh, uh, physics mm-hmm. all the time. It's this, you know, this quantum, uh, you know, non-locality component. Mm-hmm. But it's been demonstrated to occur in in psychology, uh, for example, uh, and it's been part of spiritual traditions mm-hmm. for millennia. Uh, and I think this is a this is a frontier yes. that if we were to take our our scientific lens, which is pretty young, by the way, mm-hmm. we, you know, good, you know. Uh, critical science through a Western perspective is, you know, only been around for at the most 500 years and and in healthcare only for about 150 years Mm -hmm. at the most. Um, If we were to apply that lens to this, uh, those spiritual uh, characteristics, uh, then I think we would find an incredible uh, opening uh, that has something to do with healing. Hmm. (laughs) Well, we'll look forward to that in the next book, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's been written about, actually, already. Uh, it's called Real ba- Magic by Dean Radin. Ah, okay. And uh, he's another one you could have on your show. Yeah, that would be wonderful. My last question is, what does a healthy life look like to you? What does a healthy life look like to me? So it uh, starts with joy. And uh, it goes into uh, a social environment of love. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then from that, it, uh, you know, has to do with balance. Mm. Uh, it has to do with balance in terms of behavior uh, and then being out uh, and exposed to nature. And I think that's a, that's a healthy life to me. Okay. People that are able to, to have those four components of that are much more likely to live longer to deal with illness if it comes along because mm-hmm. it does uh, and to and to have a higher quality of life to have the well-being part not just the health part wonderful well your book is called how healing works so I hope that people who are listening are now intrigued enough to go 
check it out. Where can people find your website um, or other things that you're doing? Yeah, so my website is just my name, drwaynejonas.com. Mm-hmm. So no dots or hyphens or anything. Uh, and that's where all the tools are that we've talked about mm-hmm. uh, for both uh, people and, and uh, the health profession. Uh, the book can be gotten anywhere, mm-hmm. uh, Amazon or, you know, uh, what, wherever you get uh, You can buy the books. audiobook, too. That comes in handy. You can handy. get the audiobook. Mm-hmm. It's been translated, I think, into six or seven languages now. So if you prefer to read it in Spanish, it's available <laughs> out in Spanish or German or yeah. Dutch. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Sounds uh, yeah. good. No. Well, thank you so much. This has been amazing to sit down and talk with you. And thank you you know, personally for inspiring me from early in my career. I hope to use all of this in my practice um, and continue to learn about this healing response. Hey there. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. I learned so much from Dr. Jonas through reading his book, some of his research, as well as in this very insightful conversation. And I hope that you learned a thing or two as well. Some of my biggest takeaways from our conversation are, number one, the meaning response. We know that the specific effect of treatment is super important, and this is what we study in randomized controlled trials, but the specific effect is often small, and there's so much healing that we can take advantage of outside of that effect. Maximizing our healing relationships, our expectations about healing, the cultural context in which healing takes place, and many other factors can help us take full advantage of this meaning response, which often occurs through our subconscious mind. The second takeaway that I have would be the importance of meaning and purpose in healing. Meaning and purpose has been something that's been hugely important for me in my own life, but helping patients to draw that connection between what's most important to them in life and their own health can help them to make huge strides.